If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we arrive this morning at the last two verses. And that will finish off Second uh, Peter chapter 1 for this summer. The next three Sundays, we will be in Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And in this order, Psalm 8 will talk to us about the nature of the universe, the nature of man, and then the nature of God. It's a pretty high-blown job for a psalm. Nature of the universe the nature of man, the nature of God. Kind of arrogant to think that you could talk in that way. Well, our text for this morning is the presupposition behind what outside of the Christian faith may seem like arrogance. For Peter tells us in our text for this morning how it is that you could have the kind of word that would actually be able to tell you the nature of the universe. Authoritatively, the nature of man. Authoritatively, the nature of God. And it is a God, a word that comes to us from God, but, as Peter will outline, through prophets and apostles. And so it's that presupposition that we come to at the end of 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's stand together. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are the great I am, and you reign. May the earth rejoice. May the multitude of the coastlines be glad. This cloud and thick darkness surrounds us. Righteousness and justice remain the foundations of your throne. And Lord, we are often finding ourselves in cloud and thick cloud. 
and they surround us. Sometimes through difficult relational circumstances. Sometimes through a health crisis. Sometimes simply through the progress of old age and discouragement. But always, always, above and beyond, more permanent than all the clouds and all of the darkness, is your throne established in righteousness and in justice. And we praise you that it's the case. So we look out on a world that mostly ignores you, mostly mocks you, mostly takes you extremely lightly. May we be those that remember that that will not last forever, but that a fire goes out from you and you shall fight your foes from every side. We see it in the present mornings, the thunderstorm when the lightning flashes and suddenly we see the horizons all around us. So your glory permeates the earth and the world. You are the Lord of all the earth. And the heavens themselves tell of your righteousness. And all the peoples, whether they are willing to admit it or not, they all see your glory. All those who are presently enamored with one idol or another, whether that idol be a political idol, whether it be an entertainment idol, whether it be a financial idol, whether it be a a sports idol, all of those presently serving idols are doomed to be put to shame. And all the powers of the earth are destined, be they political, economic, spiritual, or anything else, they are destined to bow down before you in the end and acknowledge you as the king over all the earth. Lord, may we be discipled so as to meet the challenge of both loving you and hating evil. May we keep, may you keep the souls of your people, the people of your steadfast love. Protect us from the hand of wickedness, from the trends of wickedness that seek to just sweep us away. Lord, enable us as your people May we rejoice in you. 
may we give thanks in the remembrance of your holy name, your changeless, everlasting, holy name. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. It's almost exactly a hundred years ago, just under, that J. Gresham Machen published a book I've mentioned quite a number of occasions called Christianity and Liberalism. He wrote it, actually, throughout uh, 1922 uh, as lectures that appeared in 1921. He wrote it into book form in 1922 and then published it in early uh, 1923, Christianity and Liberalism. The titles of the chapters were these. Doctrine, God and Man, the Bible, that's the one we're interested in this morning, the Bible, Christ, Salvation, and the Church. Every chapter was the same in this sense. What Mason set out to do is to compare and contrast what modernistic, liberal Christianity of the 1920s was saying about each of those topics, he would compare and contrast that with what Christians had tended to say for the last 1900 years about those two topics. So here's what we're saying today. Here's what Christians have believed over the last 1,900 years. And he did that just chapter by chapter. Now, he, he wasn't some obscure figure at the time that he did that. You know, he wasn't teaching at some backwoods you know, Bible college in rural Oklahoma, but rather he had held a New Testament chair at Princeton for 17 years by the time he wrote Christianity and Liberalism. So he was writing with the reputation of an international scholar. And I thought of what he wrote because of our text for this morning and its focused attention in his book, as I've already mentioned, under the chapter title, The Bible. Now, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the end of that chapter, more than anybody should actually read in a sermon, but I'm going to do it anyways, um, because I don't get graded on sermons anymore, and so then you can ignore uh, the advice that you were given. Don't ever read that much. Um, uh, but, I, but I ask you, listen carefully, because it is an important argument that he's making. And it does relate, it does relate directly to the heart of our text for this morning. 
It is not true at all, then, that modern liberalism is based on the authority of Jesus. That's what they argued. We're not basing ourselves on the authority of a book. We're basing ourselves on the authority of Jesus. See, that's much higher, much loftier, much, much cleaner. He says, it's not true at all, then, after making this contrast. He's at the end of the chapter. That modern liberalism is based on the authority of Jesus. It is, in fact, obligated to reject a vast deal that is absolutely essential to Jesus' example and his teaching. Notably, his consciousness of being the heavenly Messiah. The real authority for liberalism turns out to be just Christian consciousness or Christian experience. But how shall the findings of Christian consciousness be established? Surely not by a majority vote of the organized church. Such a method would obviously do away with all liberty of conscience. The only authority, then, can be individual experience. And then he goes to say this. Such an authority is obviously no authority at all. No authority at all. That's where our whole culture lives from right now. All of our cultural authorities are just the consciousness of people. We poll ourselves, and Machen just says, and that is to make your authority what is obviously no authority at all. The Christian man, on the other hand, finds in the Bible the very word of God. Let it not be said that dependence upon a book is a dead and artificial thing. The Reformation of the 16th century was founded upon the authority of the Bible, and it set the world aflame. Dependence upon a word of man would be slavish, but dependence upon God's word is life. It is no wonder, then, that liberalism is totally different from Christianity. For the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible, both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Now, here's the question. Why would Christianity, and how could Christianity be founded on a book, the Bible. That's the question that Peter understands himself to be answering at the end of 2 Peter 1. He's answering that question. How could you have a set of words written by men that carries divine authority? How could it be? That's the question that Peter understands himself to be answering with these words. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. I've stated our thesis for this morning this way. Disciples are who they are through men who spoke from God. That's the emphasis here. That is not meant to remove the Spirit, as we'll see as we go through it. Spirit always needs the Word, and the Word always needs the Spirit in Christian understanding. But the emphasis here is on the product through the men by the Spirit. Disciples are who they are through men who spoke from God. When we remind ourselves each week, and Pastor Don does a great job of reminding you every week, we are becoming disciples. Another way to say that would be we are becoming people who are more and more shaped by the word of God. We are becoming people who are more and more shaped by biblical words, ideas, which are the word of God. Three angles this morning. Number one, disciples don't make the word of God mean whatever they want. Might add on that whether they're writing it or reading it. Disciples don't make the word of God mean whatever they want. Now that is obviously a really important point because this is what he says about it as he introduces it. He says... Knowing this first of all, and first of all there doesn't carry so much the one, number one out of four, first of all carries the idea, this is an idea of top priority. This is an idea that is extremely important for you to take to heart and hold on to. This is a really top shelf idea that I'm about to lay before you. First of all is, in other words, of first importance. Knowing this, first of all, of first importance. And then here's the thing that's so important. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That is to say, the words of Jeremiah are never only the opinion of Jeremiah. Never. The words of Joshua are never simply the ancient opinion of Joshua. Never. New Testament. The words of the Apostle Paul are never only the opinions of the Apostle Paul. Never. Never. He says, it's of supreme importance that you grasp that. To think about how disciples are made and how disciples are supposed to think about the Scripture. Because he's answering the question that we were on last week still. So who are we listening to? Well, hopefully we're listening to the voice of God. And now the secondary question, well, how would you do that? And the answer is, at least partially and largely, by listening to God-inspired 
men who wrote from God, who wrote from God, who never merely wrote their own opinion, but who wrote from God. Now that has been the position of the Christian church down through the centuries. That's, that's what Augustine believed 1,700 years ago. Uh, that's what Aquinas believed uh, 900 years ago. That's what Luther and Calvin believed 500 years ago. Um, and that's what somebody like John Frame, who's a contemporary theologian in his early 80s, that's what he believes today and writes about today. That is, in other words, the present and historic Christian position. And that is what Machen was referring to in his chapter, the Bible, that fact. Uh, that Christians have always taken the Bible to be that. Now, that is not our society's position on the Bible. Our society's position on the Bible is that it's an ancient book uh, written by pathetically dated men. And um, to the extent that you know, it, it lines up with what's being taught in the present day, and maybe for some devotional purposes it might be slightly useful. But on the big questions of life, give me a break. No. No. Pathetically dated. Pathetically uh, backwards. Anybody who tries to breathe a word on the authority of the Bible in, in, in any given uh, text, any given classroom in America. As I mentioned 20 some years ago, uh, Ari Goldboom in his Bible, search, or in his book, The Search for God at Harvard, said one of the things you figure out when you go to Harvard Divinity School is that if you quote the Bible in any authoritative way at all ever, you will be mocked instantly. Instantly. Um. So there, that's our cultural view. That's our cultural view. And it has tremendous ramifications. A friend of mine was recently telling me that uh, he had a conversation with a family friend of his, a female professor at a uh, liberal arts college. And uh, my, my friend is not himself uh, an overly conservative person, doesn't go to a conservative church. He goes to a uh, a church that does not have a particularly high view of the Bible. And so he wasn't trying to be argumentative or anything. He just, he just said to his, his family friend who teaches at this liberal arts college, you know, could you, um, so, our, so our present views on like, like questions of women in the church, stuff like that, like we have, you know, women pastors in our denomination, uh, how do you deal with the passages in the Bible that seem to say the opposite of that? And what she said was, well, they're, in, they're immoral, so I ignore them and throw them out. 
They're immoral, so I ignore them and throw them out. Oh, well, there you have it. How does she know that they're immoral? Well, because, as Machen put it, the feelings of her sinful heart tell her that. Seems immoral to me. Uh, Certainly immoral where I work, where I live. Uh, So they're immoral. Paul is a backward, misogynistic fool. So of course I ignore what he says. When his opinions, when the misogynistic foolishness of the apostle comes spilling out, I mean, just ignore it. Still have a Bible at home and everything, so not like that, but that's what I do. Machen says, liberalism, what we'd call progressivism, Christianized Marxism, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful people in most parts of the world backed by political force backed by political force now we don't call it that we call it scientific Uh, we refer to it as evolve when anybody changes an opinion forward I've evolved in my thinking we have many politicians in recent years who have been evolving in their thinking along with the polls as soon as the poll says something they evolve in their thinking and they and they match that poll Um, that's what we do that's where we live Christians aren't supposed to be like that we are tied down to this other kind of word secondly Very closely related. Disciples don't suppose the Bible to be merely the word of men. Disciples don't suppose the Bible to be merely the word of men. I'm gonna I shifted over and we're gonna I'm gonna shift off from the ESV over to the New American Standard Bible, because the ESV changed the whole sentence structure of uh of the Greek New Testament. Didn't change the meaning that much, but changed the order in which the phrases take place. And my outline is based on the other order. And so here's the order in the New American Standard Bible. Let me read it, verses 20 and 21 to you. And you'll, if you're looking at an ESV, you'll see the, sw- the, the phrases that got switched. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. But men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. Moved by the Spirit, men spoke from God. No prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. Um... Now, the two, the two key verbs there are made and moved. And what you can't tell is that uh, in all the English translation, you use two different verbs. But we, so you can't tell is that the Greek text actually used the same verb twice. Actually just used the same verb twice. In fact, it uses a passive 
uh, voice of the same verb twice. Um, meaning, again, is, is not uh, so much affected by that, but the emphasis that he's saying exactly the same thing twice. So if you, if you um, change the language just a little bit and, uh, and make it the same sort of thing, you might be able to put it this way. But not by the will of man was prophecy ever born along. But by the Holy Spirit being born along, men spoke from God. See? Born along, born along, both cases. For not by the will of man was prophecy ever born along. But by the Holy Spirit being born along, men spoke from God. So on the first part, clearly Peter's saying something with some nuance to it because he can't mean exactly what he says. For no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will. He can't mean by that, Isaiah never decided to write anything. Isaiah never chose to write anything. He can't mean that. But that's what he seems to say. Isaiah never, by means of an act of the will, wrote anything. As if the prophecy of Isaiah is, Isaiah going to sleep, he wakes up, there it was. He wrote the whole thing in his sleep. I don't think you're supposed to take it that way at all. So then what does he mean when he says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will? He means no prophetic word in the Old Testament was never made merely by an act of the human will. That is, no word in Isaiah is merely Isaiah. The Spirit of God is involved. So, famous passage, Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. In, in the year that King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, highly exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood before him. Isaiah wrote all that. He chose to write all that. Peter's point is, and the Spirit was bearing him along as he wrote every single word of that. So that it is not merely any word of it, the word of Isaiah, but the word of spirit born along Isaiah. So that a divine authority attaches to every one of Isaiah's genuinely human words. What that means, of course, is that so none of the unfortunate prejudices of Isaiah are just blurted out. Uh, you never find uh, in, in the Bible genuinely backward, foolish things um, there uh, that because these people were backward and foolish, Moses' backward prejudices are, are not 
in the text of Exodus that we'll be uh, looking at tonight. They're not there. Why? Because the Spirit bore along. So that what you have is a genuinely divine human word. You get the divine meaning through the human author. You understand what Isaiah meant to say. You understand what God meant to say. That's the exciting thing about reading the Bible. You understand what Isaiah was saying. You understand what God meant to say through Isaiah. Because he was being born along. It's stated once as a sort of a completed act. The whole process... He was born along, and being born along, as he writes, men spoke from God, which we'll go to in in just a moment. But therefore, our job as readers of the Bible is you get to the you try to figure out what does Paul mean to say? What does Moses mean to say? What does Isaiah mean to say? What does Peter mean to say? And when you get to that, you have also what God means to say. Because the word through the man is born along by God. That's the teaching. That's the doctrine. That's the historic position. Christians on the Bible. That's the presupposition that you should use when you read your Bible every day. That's it. That's how you think about the Bible. I love um, my favorite chapter titles of all time. I've mentioned to you on uh, many occasions, John Owen. I first read this book 37 years ago. Works of John Owen's got two volumes on the Holy Spirit. The second of those two volumes, he has this chapter title, which is his uh, effort to give a spiritual understanding of Bible interpretation. It's a great chapter title for Bible interpretation. He, he said this. He's going to describe in this chapter the causes, ways, and means of understanding the mind of God. That's a great chapter title. The causes, ways, and means of understanding the mind of God. And in the chapter, he shows you about how do you go about prayerfully figuring out what Isaiah meant to say. And when you have it, you have the mind of God through Isaiah. Oh, that's exciting. Causes, ways, and means of understanding the mind of God. So you can go home this afternoon, do a little Bible reading, and interact with the mind of God, Peter says. You really can. You really can. Thirdly, disciples take their direction from men who spoke from God. Disciples take their direction from men who spoke from God. Um, Jim read uh, the parallel passage from, uh, thematically a parallel passage from 2 Timothy 3.16, a little earlier in the service. All Scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scriptures breathed out by God. So next week we'll be looking, as I said, at Psalm 8. That's breathed out by God. And therefore profitable. Profitable. Able to tell you profitably about the nature of the universe, about the nature of man, about the nature of God. Uh, all scriptures breathed out by God. You come back tonight, evening service, be in Exodus 18. Profitable. Profitable. Interaction between Moses' father-in-law and him, giving direction on how to go about, help the Israelites move forward in the will of God and what God was doing in and through. All of that's all breathed out by God. Profitable. Teaching about God about people of God, about the trials of life, profitable for teaching, correction, correction. See, what my friend was asking, that professor friend of his, was, don't, I know what your views are, don't, don't you think the Bible might be trying to correct your views? And her response is, <laughs> it might be, but I just correct the Bible. That's what I do. I just correct the Bible whenever I want, however I want. Uh, I correct the Bible with what, whatever presently more or less mainstream on television. I correct the Bible with whatever on the internet. I correct the Bible with whatever the editorial pages of the New York Times are advocating. I correct the Bible with present stuff. Got really smart guys going around. I got Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. We got Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, we got we got really we got really insightful political commentary and moral commentary all around us here. In the twenty uh, first century, Paul says, "No, it's." works the other way around. It's the word of God that's profitable for correction, present notions, present ideological predispositions. That's what's going on, actually. That's how disciples think. That's how disciples think. Friday morning, just in my, my regular... Bible reading. Here's a correction of a natural this predisposition we all we all have. And this one we're we're regularly aware that we have it. Cause we've felt the power of it ever since we like first went off to school and felt how powerful the force is to play to the crowd, tell people what they want to hear, worry first and foremost about making a good impression, 
being thought highly of. No one, no one fails to feel the attractiveness being highly thought of, being admired, fitting in. We all want that. We are all prone to play for that. And Jesus said this about that. When you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you, as hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others, that they might play to the crowd. Truly I say to you, you have your reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why not? So that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now, what makes that hard is you can't see him. You can see the crowd. You can see your friends. You can see your present situation, so you naturally play to it. You don't have to work on it. It comes really naturally. You don't see God. So you don't see him seeing you. You don't get an instant feedback on what he sees. So this takes a great deal of discipline. This does. Jesus just says it. Live so that your giving may be in secret. You play to your father who sees in secret. You live with your audience as the invisible God. Remember 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, John Piper's biographical sketch was on John Bunyan. And he talked about the revision to Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which he updated while he was spending 12 years in prison. England, 1600s. Bunyan spent 12 years in prison. His crime was being a Baptist, specifically Baptist convictions. 12 years in prison. He comes out with his manuscripts, his autobiography, and what was to become really for several centuries, the most famous book in the world, Pilgrim's Progress, written in prison. But in that little update to um, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he said this about himself and the goal that he set 
as he came back into normal life. He said, I set for my goals to be this, to live on God who is invisible. To live on God who is invisible. That's what all of us as disciples are asked to do. That's what Jesus is arguing for here. He's trying to teach us how to live on God who is invisible. Don't play to the crowd. Don't play to the 21st century. Don't play to your next door neighbor. Don't play to your family. You live your life to God who sees all of your life. God who is invisible. And Peter says to us, and that word from Matthew, that's not just Matthew's opinion. As Matthew wrote that, he was being borne along by the Holy Spirit, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joshua and Moses throughout the Old Testament and their prophetic words. So know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Are you a Bible reader? You read the Bible every day. I hope you do. You should. If you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be a Bible reader. Where you come across the words of the men who spoke from God, being led by the Holy Spirit to do so. What an opportunity to be a Bible reader. To have access to such words. To believe such words, to walk by such words, to trust in such words, to find forgiveness through such words, to know Jesus through such words. What an opportunity laid out before us every day, today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. I ask that you would enable us to hear your voice, words of Peter, and have this conviction brought home to us, settled in on us, made real to us, made controlling within us that we would live this day as those who live upon you, who are invisible, but speak to us through words that can be 
read off a page. Help us to this end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.